On this episode of Inside Outside, we're going to be talking about mentors and how you find one. Stick with us. Running a startup is hard. Running one outside the valley is even harder. Inside Outside is a podcast for inside access to startups outside the valley. Each week, we'll bring you real insights, raw stories, and tactical advice from founders and startup teams around the country. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Inside Outside, your look into startups outside of Silicon Valley. My name is Matt Boyd. My name is Paul Jarrett. And I'm Brian Ardinger. We didn't know who's going to go first. <laughs> Today, we're going to be talking about mentors and a lot of things to do with finding a mentor. Uh, what do they do? How do they help your company? And uh, even setting up an advisory board. So I think finding a good mentor starts, first of all, what do you want to get out of the mentorship? Yeah. So uh, identify what are your kind of weak spots or, or areas that you need uh, help or guidance and in. And that, that takes just a general sense of self-awareness about your abilities and what you're weak in and, and being not afraid to kind of admit some of those things. Correct. Can, I, can I say, uh, I hope next episode we talk about self-awareness. <laughs> um, I'm just going to put in a push, a vote right now. I think that is Add it to the list. Anyway. So first of all, you got to make a list, I think, or at least identify what are your target areas that you want mentorship in. Um, and then maybe start identifying potential places where those experts slash um, mentors could be, whether it's in your local startup groups or you know on a Facebook page or a LinkedIn, uh, and start making that list. And then, again, I think we might have talked about this earlier, but Try to find people that are both accessible and the ones that can really help you. You know, you don't have to go to the top of the stack and say, "I've got to have the CEO of Nelnet on my on my advisory board." Or I mean, you could find the head of design. You could find. I mean, depending on what your needs are. I mean, if you're if you are in desperate need of a designer, then it makes a lot of sense to find just a designer at a company and make them, you know, an advisor. I'd also be really careful of who you are recruiting, and if somebody's really anxious to be your mentor, (laughs) yeah, they'll probably find out. Cause, cause there's a lot of, there is a lot of bad advice out yeah. there. And I'm sure we distribute our equal share here on this podcast, but yeah, you just hit the delete button or hit the stop button. You know, and that, that's a good point because, you know, mentorship, a good mentor is one that's not looking for a direct payout or a direct um, benefit from that relationship. Um, it should be, you should go into a mentor relationship with an altruistic notion and you should also go in knowing this is going to be a long-term kind of thing. You, you know, I think one of the big mistakes early founders make is they, they go out and say, Hey, can you be my mentor? And they right off the bat, try to, you know, get that mentorship solidified. And, and a lot of it, you can't force those mentorships. And uh, even in a program like InMotion where we have a lot of mentors, we say, you know, if it's not a match for both parties, yeah. you guys are not going to be mentors. Yeah. Um, and, and this is not going to be a mentor. So it's about trying to find those relationships where the, each people, uh, each person can, uh, can benefit from it. We sat down with Cody Schrader from the Omaha Chamber just to get his opinion on how you might be able to connect with some mentors in your local community through the Chamber of Commerce. I just reach out. Um, don't Don't be... Don't hesitate. Reach out. I, I, I find it very easy to get in touch with just about um, any anyone that you, you want to, to, to chat with. So uh, email myself and know I will do everything I possibly can to connect you. That's what that's what my job is. Uh, sometimes it's, it's hard for me to believe that I that I get to wake up and do this for a job because I'm, I'm just a connector connecting resources. So if you're feeling like you are uh, not able to get in touch with, with a certain individual or certain, certain group in the area, um, that, that's what, that's what my role is uh, to try to try to help the help connect the community with each other. 
going back to Paul's point, I think that uh, it should be just a little bit tough to get some of their time. If they're a yeah. really good mentor, then yeah. they're probably pretty freaking busy. They're probably successful and busy, and <laughs> you should be lucky to get their time. Yeah. So Now that you have their time, capitalize on it and ask the right questions. Yeah, and I, I think also, like, you know, it needs to be the right time for both parties involved because a lot of times who you think is a good mentor for starting out might not be the mm-hmm. best fit, but they're better later on. Yeah, mentorships don't and have to be for life. Exactly. And so don't get caught up in, you know, this is your one mentor for this. And, and that was kind of an evolution that as an entrepreneur has, you know, really benefited me is that the same people were helping me early mm-hmm. on aren't the same people that are helping me now. Um, still great friends with a lot yeah. of them. And also we should probably define like, um, advisor is technically somebody that's receiving compensation yeah, or equity. generally equity. Mm-hmm. Yep. And a mentor is uh, somebody that doesn't have any skin in the game. So yep. it's always interesting to compare what a mentor mm-hmm. and what an advisor says um, on a topic. I find yeah. myself doing that a lot. You know, if, if you go back to what's it, you know, a lot of our listeners are probably in the pro- process or they already have mentors and they're being approached by like, can you be my mentor? And so what makes a good mentor? Um, you know, I think one of the first and foremost thing is you've got to go into that relationship knowing that you might not get a benefit out of it, but the benefit of being a mentor is the fact that you get to not only share your advice, but really help a person get to that next level. And I think a lot of people go into being a mentor thinking I've got to have all the answers and I've got to be the expert. And that's really not what a good mentor does. A good mentor really sits and tries to understand what the founder is going through and ask good questions. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing is just sitting down and asking really great questions that make the entrepreneur think in a way that they've never thought before. (laughs) People hate that. (laughs) Entrepreneurs hate that. I feel like I've, you know, started the relationship with a lot of people and, you know, I kind of ask a few questions. Here's the thing, like, I don't care. Like I'm, I'm trying to help. And, you know, sometimes I think the questions I might have are prodding or make people uncomfortable. Um, but it comes from the right place and I'm trying to help somebody, but also, you know, I don't think technically right now I'm mentoring anybody. And Matt, I know we, we met with uh, a person not too long ago, not, not the one recently last weekend, but it was uh, a time before that. Mm -hmm. And I think you felt the same thing that I did when we left. We're like, man, we were trying to give feedback and that person was was getting pissed. Yeah. Yeah, And it was like, no, you're wrong. And that, that is my number one Mm -hmm. indicator. If somebody can't even listen and they just start defending everything, I'm like, ah, they're not here yet. Like they actually need, some failure as an entrepreneur yeah, absolutely. and to realize that they don't know anything until I can be a, a decent. Yeah, I mean, I think the best entrepreneurs are the ones that are like realize that they don't know everything and they are always on the constant learn. They're always trying to figure things out. They realize, and that this is part of being self-aware. Yes. Just uh, you know. Stay with us for a Skype session with Pipeline Innovator of the Year and co-founder of My MyEdMatch, Alicia Harold. This episode brought to you by Linseed Capital, one of the premier investment firms in the Midwest, led by Jim and Karen Linder. If you're working on an exciting, world-changing startup and are seeing positive traction, you'll want to reach out to Linseed Capital. We love Jim and Karen because they love and give so much back to the startup community. We really appreciate all of their support. I am a firm believer and I tell people like some people were born to be entrepreneurs. Like they were the ones and it, my story would sound so much cooler if I, you know, had a lemonade stand that made a billion dollars or if I like got all my neighborhood kids to go and franchise out my friendship bracelet, you know, that I was making, but I don't have anything like that. I think that my 
passion into entrepreneurship in the startup space literally was because my entire career I had seen this problem and I figured because I had spent so much time fighting this problem in K-12 education that I was positioned to try and go fix it. I'd say my background from an early, um, early age is that my number one motivation was if someone told me that I couldn't do something. So as soon as you told me that, it was like, I'm all in, like, here we go. This is going to be, this is it. So people always told me that if you actually wanted me to be really successful at something, you should get someone to tell me that I can't do it. I grew up in Liberty, Missouri, which was way smaller back then, but I went to a really small grade school. So we actually didn't have enough girls in my school. There were only 10 kids in my class. So we didn't have enough girls to actually have girls athletics. So in eighth grade, me and another girl actually not only played for, but started uh, on the boys basketball team. And, you know, I was like, yeah, I can handle these boys any anytime. But I think that was like a unique thing about growing up in such a small setting was I was like, yeah, I can I can go play on the boys league and we can win this championship and I'll do it as a girl. If you look at it today, it's huge. And there's like a lot of stoplights and traffic, but that was not how it was back in the day when I was growing up there. I wanted to prove everyone wrong that I could do something. So literally that was always the thing that um, whether it was being on a boys basketball team, or I remember in high school, my college counselor was like, you really shouldn't take that many AP classes. Like this just isn't going to be good for you. And one challenge that my mom had put to me, I was like convinced that my all girls school that I really needed an eyebrow ring <laughs> my senior year of high school, which was not like the cool thing to do at an all girls prep school by any means. But I was like, yeah, if you can get above 4.0 with your six AP classes senior year and win two state titles, then we'll get the eyebrow ring. So I remember like volleyball we won I was like yeah there's one state title and then like crazy enough we went back to back state basketball championships I was like hey mom remember when you told me like there was no way in hell that could happen I was like let's go get that piercing <laughs> the all-girls school then had to change the the code of conduct of what was appropriate for for young women at school but so wanted to play basketball in college so fell in love with the coach at WashU in St. Louis and it was also pretty close to home so wound up at WashU playing at the same time my brother was actually playing soccer over at SLU. So I still had like the family element, which was important to me at the time and had no clue what I wanted to study. Um, so wound up in political science and every semester I would sign up for the max courses. So, you know, 21 credit hours. And I'd always say, I'll drop the ones that I don't like. And I just saw college as this opportunity to, to dabble in everything. Like I literally just wanted to try all these different courses. Well, it turns out I never dropped any of those courses that I signed up for. So I took a ton of classes and then declared my major and like probably the not so helpful degrees of political science, Spanish and legal studies. And so I was headed into law school and uh, actually graduated as a junior. So I finished up a whole year earlier, figured out with three degrees, that was probably enough. And it was time for me to go go figure what I wanted to be when I got older. After undergrad, I'd actually deferred my career pathway from going into corporate law to surprisingly go teach in South Central LA. Teach for America is what actually moved me out to LA, which is always a fun phone call for your parents, you know, like here I am, this Missouri girl, and all of a sudden like, 
I knew you thought I was going to take that scholarship and go be a lawyer. Uh, but instead, I'm going to go teach elementary school in South Central L.A. That was a great conversation. So I taught in Watts right on the border of Compton. And moving out to L.A., I was not a traditionally trained teacher. I joined the national program Teach for America. So I was placed to go teach fourth grade. And everything I had heard about education up until that point was mostly, you know, through some really bad stereotypes in the media. And so actually going out to L.A., I fell in love with education and probably for a number of reasons. One, just because I saw the kids and there's just tremendous amount of potential in the kids, um, regardless of the zip code or what area they were coming from. And then two, I think the parents really defied a lot of my own expectations. I think that a lot of people want to say that if parents were more engaged or if they did things in a better way. But what I found is that parents, whether you're, you know, the good side of the tracks or the bad side of the tracks, parents want the best for their kids. And then second, just how the system is built up around all of K-12 education in the U.S. and how it's designed that some kids just are afforded a lot of additional opportunities, but that all kids uh, actually have the same ability if we hold them to the same expectations. And I saw that in my own classroom. So like literally my group of 30 plus fourth graders my first year started out like 17% of them passed the state exam. And then at the end of that year, 83% had passed that test. So I knew after that I was hooked and then I was going to stay in education. Um, And then my path from there kind of went all over the place. So at the end of my two years of teaching in L.A., I wanted to get back in the Midwest. And so I joined staff at Teach for America and I was a college recruiter. So I spent four days a week on college campuses across the U.S. recruiting the greatest senior and junior leaders into Teach for America to commit their two years to go teach. And along the way, I got to see the recruitment aspect of things as well as the selection model. And then somehow folks were crazy enough to let me go and start the Kansas City region of Teach for America. So I moved back home, my hometown's Kansas City, and started that office in 2008. And so as the founding executive director, I did everything from fundraise, hire the staff, um, get all of our teachers placed year over year, and then support them throughout their commitment and then the alumni movement. I think I could have been an executive director with Teach for America anywhere in the country and may have had the idea of my ad match, but never actually taken the leap or jumped for it. And I think the fact that I was in Kansas City working so closely was like, oh, like, what is this other side of the thing? Like, you guys do investments in education and entrepreneurship. What is this entrepreneurship thing that y'all talk about over there? And so I remember every time I would leave a meeting at the Kauffman Foundation, they had that big old bookcase and there's all these books on entrepreneurship. So I would just pick one up. I'm like, I have no idea what this is, but like y'all are giving away some nice free books. That'll make my library look good one day. Kauffman was a really big influence on that. Just like they were at the intersection of two really important things. And when I think about what's actually going to move the needle and change education, it's going to happen through innovation. So I think of all cities and all foundations in the world, I think they're sitting in a pretty cool place to impact that. While I was running Teach for America, I kept asking to make more and more decisions. I was like, I want more autonomy. And then I realized that like as a fourth grade teacher, I was probably not equipped with the skill set to have that much more autonomy. So I decided to go back to business school and I got my executive MBA at uh, Olin Business School, WashU. And along the way, we were studying innovation. And so 
I remember it's like towards the end of the two year program and the professors couldn't be more clear. Like, don't just go start a company for the sake of starting something like that in and of itself isn't going to get us anywhere. Solve a problem. And the only way you should like innovation is driven by solving that problem. So here I'd spent my entire career in recruitment, selection, selection and placement of teachers. And then I understood, you know, the challenges that were associated with that. It was like, I need to fix K-12 education. And then I, I joke now, but like human capital in my personal life was the other thing that kind of led to my ed match. So I get to tell strangers every day of my life that the idea actually came. I was had to be, had to turn in an assignment the next day on like comparing all of these case studies in innovation. And I emailed the professor and I was like, hey, instead of doing that homework assignment, I'm gonna write a white paper and I'm gonna start a company. Um, that was also because I was so behind in my reading. I was like, I've gotta come up with something. And so I literally had like five hours before I need to be on the road. It's the middle of the night. And instead of trying to come up with a company, I decided that I was going to procrastinate and get on my online dating profile. So I was like, if I can't come up with my homework assignment, might as well check and see what's been happening here. So I was online dating. I'm like, oh my God, one, I must be terrible. I think their algorithms are just totally botched, but that's another topic and another, another podcast. But um, so I was like, the idea of it's pretty genius. So it's like, it's designed for busy people. It takes the guesswork out. You fill out an assessment when there's not someone sitting right in front of you where you can actually gain your answers. And like, it was genius. I was like, we can do this in education. How great would it be to be a principal or a teacher looking for jobs? And you tell me where my fit is. So in the middle of the night, I email my professor and I am bold enough to copy the dean of the business school, the founder of Teach for America, the CEO of Teach for America, and a national board member. And literally, I mean, there were probably typos all over. I hadn't slept in days. And I was like, I'm going to start a match.com for teaching jobs. It's going to revolutionize everything. So <laughs> I send this email at like four something in the morning, five o'clock, Maxine Clark emails me. And she's like, yep, this is it. Like, yep, we're going to do this. There's a, this is going to happen. And I remember at the time, I'm like, yeah, it's a great idea. Someone should really do this. And I kept saying that. And, you know, then it took people really close to me to give me the courage to actually say, no, someone shouldn't do this. Like, I should do this. And I think for me, that was just a really interesting moment that people were encouraging me to take that leap um, and believe in myself that I was best positioned to take this idea and my experiences and turn it into a company. Maxine Clark, the founder of build bear she had been my mentor since undergrad at WashU. You know, obviously a successful female entrepreneur herself, so I had a great role model in that aspect. So she helped bring together some folks that made my angel round. Tim Barton, who's just been an incredible partner through all this, a freight quote. And then Keith Molzer and Thad were involved and Jeff King and Dan Fromm. So had like a pretty awesome group of angels. They kind of set our path. Well, then education is really in hiring and K-12 HR is really seasonal. So we knew we were going to have to go out for a little bit larger raise and Maxine had actually set up a schedule of meetings. So I spent one day out on the West Coast and one day in St. Louis. Things fell into place over in St. Louis with a meeting with Tom Hillman of FTL Capital and now Lewis and Clark Ventures. And I guess the rest there was kind of history, but I thought what was really unique and like 
the one thing I think I realized, um, and I'm happy I realized it the first time around, is that raising money is so much more than the check and the cash that sits in the bank. It's like, who's around your kitchen table at night? Pick up the phone and call when you're at a turning point and when you need advice. And so one of the things that I'm most grateful for in our Series A raise um, that Tom Hillman led in is that he let additional people He brought in additional board members that were very specific to the sector that he thought could add value. So Maxine joined in on that, the founder of Answers, because they're, you know, like, obviously they know how to run a tech company a little bit. And like, I had no idea what search optimization was at the time and like how to win that game right up from the beginning. And then they brought in some people that had run applicant tracking system companies, which was where we were going to eventually build out into. So he was really strategic about who he brought around the table. I remember we were working with someone and things were falling through and someone was like, you got to meet this guy, Davion. If anyone can try and build this quickly, it's going to be him. I called this Davion guy, tell him the idea. Him and Thad are like, yeah, this is a pretty good idea. And I'm like, yeah, so I need this built in six weeks. Like I need my company website built in six weeks. So Davion gets off his flight from Trinidad on December 26th. On the 27th, we're like in you know, used conference space and we're like whiteboarding. I've got literally all of my online dating profile pictures, like, and like profiles printed out. And I'm like, see how this happens and see this email and how this works. I have no idea what like wireframes were. I was just like, this is how it's all going to work. And JPM's like, no, you need to think about it. Like technically, what is this going to look like? I'm like, I don't know, but I want this part of eHarmony and this part of match and see these email pushes. I want this to happen. And so like somehow from like that scattered brain flow, Davion and the team at Black Ops built beginning form of my ed match really quickly. But we used to do around my dining room table, the one I'm sitting at now, we used to do on Sunday nights, like our little sprints, we'd come and do QA around my dining room table. And I remember it was, you know, really tough. I mean, building a company is tough, but Davion, after everyone would leave, would always stick around afterwards. And he'd be like, how are you? And at that point, I think it was probably like the first person that was actually like, not how's the company? Are you on track to your deadline? How's cash flow? What's your burn? He just asked, how are you? And I think at that time, I just started crying. (laughs) Oh my God, this is so terrible. And like, great, but terrible. And so through all of it, he was always the person that I felt like was a peer and that could understand like how neurotic I was feeling in my head. And he goes, you should have more of these peers that you can, that you can count on. And he goes, let me tell you about this thing called pipeline. So applied, got the call that I got in. And then I was like, well, you know, I just closed, you know, I've raised $3 million now. Like I don't need more great and fat, awesome mentors. I have all of this. And Dave Young gave me the call and he was like, no, you've got to do this. Like, it's not about raising money. It's about growing yourself, growing your business and getting an awesome group of peers. I feel like I got 11 like brothers out of it. I just remember watching the guys in my group pitch and like we had all just gotten so much better and we are so close and like Yes, I'll be at your wife's birthday parties and like, I'll go to your kids things. And it's like, that's what I'll remember is I was just sitting back and I was like, we have grown so much this past year. There is just this real sense of community. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Alicia Harold. Thanks so much to her for coming on the show. 
So let's get back into the discussion on mentors. Do you guys have any uh, mentor relationships that have helped you along the way? Actually, uh, one of my best mentors uh, turned into an advisor and an investor and um, is actually who I would consider my best friend. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> but it's uh, Monty Freilich, and uh, he, he really is the reason um, that Bulu Box is in Lincoln. Um, because he was the first one that told me about Nebraska Angels, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, Monty and I go way back. Um, I actually um, rented an apartment from him. And for about a year, I tried to convince him in the grand manse that <laughs> the there was an 1,800 square foot basement area that actually was the jail cell um, for... Um, the state of Nebraska. They actually held Charles Starkweather down there, Sweet. the first serial murderer, ser- yeah. serial killer. Yep. Uh, so for a year, I tried to convince Monty to let me actually convert this space and turn it into an apartment. And finally, I came to him with an Excel spreadsheet, um, <laughs> all the costs, etc. And he just looked at me. I think he thought, you know, I was totally, you know, crazy. And he said, "Okay, well, uh, we'll do this." And and throughout the entire time, I you know managed his expectations, and and I showed him what. To, and really, the deal was, I'll put in the work if you pay for the supplies, and then I'll get <laughs> rent at a really great spot. And we ended up having a really, my wife and I had a really, really incredible space um, in the bottom of the Grand Manse. And I think actually that is what kicked it off because um, I kind of delivered on what I said I was going to do. And from there on, Monty and I just became really, really great friends. And like I said, he introduced me to Nebraska Angels, and um, which led to us meeting Dundee Venture Capital and led to us closing like our, our first round. You know, a really good mentorship eventually becomes a, a give and take, and, a, and that friendship typically does arise for, right. with really good long-term relationships because you're in the battle with those people and, yep. and they're in the battle. And if they've got their heart uh, uh, in a good place, you know, they're trying to help you win that battle as well. So I think that's a, a very good sign that if you can find those mentors that become friends over, yeah. the, over the time. And we're at the point now where, you know, both Monty and Lisa's wife and Stephanie and I will meet up and we can openly discuss things and uh, it's it's been really powerful, and it, it's just made um, us you know a, a million times better. So I'm I'm really grateful for that experience. I think one of my most powerful mental relationships is with uh, Ryan the, Ryan Boyce, the CEO of iOffer. When I first moved to San Francisco, that was the first job that I ever had, and he hired me. Uh, but I worked directly with him. And I, we, we kind of both cut our teeth on product design. So I, I had designed before, but never really actually done product UX design and thinking about transactional UX. To this day, like I, I bounce stuff off of him all the time, and we're just super good friends. That's awesome. My mentor at, early on in my career uh, brought me in as a uh, into his business, and you know we started a company together when I graduated from from university. Can you name um, names, or do you prefer not to? Yeah, Al Winstrand. So he was uh, he was my marketing professor, and he uh, taught me a lot and and put me into situations that I was uncomfortable with, but helped me grow. And he saw a lot of things that I didn't see myself. Um, I think that's that's powerful as a mentor, you know, to give that guidance and that and that optimism. Really and investing else. in people. Yeah. Uh, and anyway, he eventually introduced me to my wife, and and so yeah, it went above and beyond the business practices. It's it's really about you know helping people grow. Yeah. So Matt, I have to tell you real quick, uh, the the fellow, the gentleman 
um, that we met with on Sunday via Skype. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was somebody that I think he actually wanted to talk to Matt more than he wanted to talk to me, but he got through <laughs> Matt to me. <laughs> so he, he did his job. Um, but I, I love that, you know, essentially my relationship with him is turning into, he knows that I'm going to push him and almost kind of poke and prod. And, and he even said on the Skype that we were having, he said, you know, when we met in New Year's, and uh, um, you were you're, you were pushing me to start, and you, I just kept saying like, well, "What's holding you back? What's holding you back?" He's like, "That really pissed me off." And then, <laughs> and then he goes, and then when I actually decided to do it, and I wrote you this huge text about how excited I was, your response was, "So you quit your job?" Question mark. And he was like, "No, I didn't quit my job." But you know, that's I think a lot of times like what you know, mentors and advisors and people are for is, you know, they're, they're there to push you and not be an about it, but, you know, just push you to think bigger. Yeah. One thing that I've actually noticed and having been on both sides of the table in Silicon Valley and here in the Midwest, um, I think that people generally hear a common theme in being in meetings. People just think that they have it figured out here a little bit more. And I don't know if that's something that you guys have seen as well, but Hmm. I've sat in meetings with people and they just, you know, they've, they have no traction, not a product in the market and have been working on this thing for a year and think they have it all figured out. And that's just not the case. (laughs) What do you think about that, Brian? It's probably a case by case. I bet you could find those same entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley that think they've got it figured out and haven't. I mean, I've done a lot of work around the the country, and I think that is a common thing. Um, it's such I, I think a the difference. Though, I, I think the, I think the difference though in the valley is you probably knock down quicker. Like you don't know what you're talking about. Where here, you're not going to run into as many people that would tell you, "Hey, you're full." Of <laughs> shit. Yeah, um, I get a chicken cluck for that, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, did you just earn a chicken cluck? <laughs> Welcome to the club. <laughs> but uh, you know, people here will you know the Nebra- the Nebraska nice or the Midwest nice, where it's like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. Keep going on it, and they won't really give you the the, the true feedback a lot of times. And it's so a lot of times, I think you can go further with your bad idea before you're stopped by somebody saying, hey, you know, have you thought about this? Um, those kind of things. Yeah, after living in New York City and San Francisco, I actually I, I would agree with you, Matt. Like it does feel like it's harder to give feedback here. And maybe it comes back to the whole embarrassing thing, but there there is nothing that will kind of shut me up in providing any sort of mentorship or advice quicker than when somebody just starts to um, kind of, you know, fight or defend. And here's the thing. If you're receiving advice, and my God, I think everybody should have to do a presentation and just have a crowd tell them all of the things that they do wrong. Because if you can't even receive advice, you have such... Well, that's it for this episode of Inside Outside. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to ask a question or leave a comment to our listeners, feel free to call into our voicemail line. The number is 402-413-1194. Also, follow us on Twitter at The IO Podcast or at Facebook at facebook.com slash The IO Podcast. Again, thanks to Alicia Harold for sharing her story with us. Music for this podcast is brought to you by bensound.com. Until next time, go build something big.